1: This is the Disability Law Show. All right, welcome indeed, Disability Law Show. Good to have you along on this uh, lovely Friday. Looking ahead to, to a uh, another stellar weekend, but before that, we got a half hour of stuff to cover here, and you are going to learn lots, and you are going to be thankful you stuck around and wrote down these contact numbers and information to reach out if needed to either Savant Tamarkin, co founding partner Sam Firu Tamarkin LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country, and partner Albert Klein back here once again. Here is how you do it: Help at Disability. Rights.ca. Simple right for email. We'll get to one a little later if we got some time. And the phone number, a uh, trouble-free, worry-free chat is what you can have. one 821 We're going to get into the topic of discussion of unresponsive lawyers. That's coming up here in just a bit, fellas. But first, uh, the week that was, what do you got going on, Albert?
0: Great. Well, thanks, John. So on our previous show, we spoke about the need to get a lawyer Uh, who actually knows what they're doing and obviously the need to make make the correct pleadings, start a claim early and just commence a lawsuit really as soon as possible because you never know exactly how that particular lawsuit is going to unfold. And so I just received a call from a 40-year-old doctor who is currently represented by another lawyer. Uh, This doctor slipped and fell in a parking lot three and a half years ago. And unfortunately, this doctor broke and severed a... Uh, severed uh, a nerve in his hand and he landed on a really sharp piece of ice. And he also herniated a disc and has really severe back pains. And so unfortunately even this doctor today is still no longer practicing. And so what ended up happening was this doctor took over a year to contact a lawyer. This lawyer ended up issuing a claim against the grocery store uh, for the parking lot in which he fell in by the second year. So everything seems good here, right? Wrong. (laughs) <laughs> so, 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 essentially, nothing has been done uh, since, since the claim has been issued on this poor doctor's file. And so, I mean, aside from the fact that it shouldn't take that long for anyone to get some recourse and to ultimately be able to move on with their life, the larger issue here, issue here is that no investigation has actually taken place whatsoever. So we don't know if there's any subcontractors who were supposed to maintain the area in which this poor doctor fell. We don't know if there were sub subcontractors. We don't know if there was a maintenance company. And uh, when, when I was actually speaking with the doctor, it turned out that I had actually named, uh, I had actually sued this particular grocery store location before. And in doing that, my, my previous client had actually suffered a fall there. And so I knew that... There were a number of other companies which should have been named. There was actually a maintenance company, and that particular maintenance company hired a snow removal company. And then, in fact, there was actually a parent company which owned the parking lot. So it wasn't the grocery store which owned that parking lot. So there's a number of different uh, considerations in terms of considering who is going to be at fault, who is responsible for the fact that my client fell on an, is- on an area that wasn't maintained. And so, typically speaking, you actually only have two years to commence a lawsuit from the time that you ought to have known that you had a claim. And, of course, now three and a half years have passed, no investigation has been done. It doesn't even look like questions have been asked of the grocery store. And, of course, the grocery store isn't just going to offer information blindly. They're not going to tell you who you have to sue. So it's, it's, it's a problem. And, unfortunately, it looks like this doctor is going to be out of luck. I mean, they may have to recourse against this this other lawyer, and we n- never like to recommend going after going after a lawyer for recourse or negligence. But yeah. in this issue or in this case, it looks like this is what this doctor is going to have to do. It's just really unfortunate.
1: What do you think, Sivan?
2: I don't have anything to add. I agree. Uh, and in fact, John, this actually uh, gets gets us to, uh, I think, uh, a topic that I wanted to chat about today, which is, um, you know, incompetent lawyers or unresponsive lawyers, let's put it that way, because I see them as, uh, you know, the same thing, really. An unresponsive lawyer, in my view, is an incompetent lawyer, and it's a lawyer that disrespects their obligations under law society rules and also disrespects their clients. I One of the things, one of my pet peeves, and it's been since the beginning when I started practicing law and also when we started the firm, is making sure that I am responsive, meaning that if a client tries to get a hold of me by email, by text, by, by, by uh, phone, that I am able to get back to them ASAP. That's absolutely critical. And I'm not talking about getting back to them a day later or two days later. I'm talking about within a matter of minutes or or hours at most if I'm in uh, a proceeding of some sort, right? So like I mean, right now we're doing the show. I can't get back to anybody. But as soon as I'm finished the show, I'm gonna start looking at my email. I'm gonna check my voicemail so I can get back to people. And if I can, not my assistant will Albert operates the same way and the re- the reality is this we have obligations under the Law Society's rules or professional conduct to make sure that we are responsive, not just to clients, but also to opposing lawyers, right? Lawyers that we are dealing with on these files. And the problem is that if we don't do that, the frustration of individuals out there, we represent climbs, anxiety climbs. People are concerned about whether or not we're even handling the claims correctly. And it creates a lot of you know uncertainty in, in the legal claim process. Something else I will tell you, and I've I've talked about this before, but I'm going to just hammer this home. Imagine you have an unresponsive lawyer that's representing you for a personal injury matter, okay? You haven't been able, you've been told this lawyer is good, fantastic, but you haven't been able to reach your lawyer. And, you know, you have to send them five emails before they respond or somebody responds from their office, or you have to leave them 10 voicemails, and still you can't get a hold of them. Well, when I used to do defense work, I always go back to that early on in my career i remember times when the insurance companies that retained me to defend them would tell me you know sivan we want to settle this particular file here's how much money we're willing to pay the claimant contact that person's lawyer make a proposal for settlement and that's what i did i contacted that lawyer by email by letter fax whatever it is in order to propose to them a settlement of their claim yeah many of these lawyers never responded back and so if, if you think that it's just a problem for you as an individual, not getting hold of your lawyer, imagine if the other side is trying to settle to give you money for your injuries, but your lawyer is not responding to them. So, you know, and I've had situations where, again, these lawyers would just go AWOL. You can get a hold of them. So it causes delay. It, it, cause, it It's oftentimes the reason why these claims go on for years. They shouldn't be going on for years. They just should not. Mm-hmm. Uh, But individuals out there don't know, they simply have trust in their lawyers, the way we have trust in our doctors, trust in whoever it is that we're, you know, is handling stuff that we have, uh, that we give them accountants, etc. You have to make sure you go to a lawyer that's responsive. If you have a lawyer that's not responsive, to me, that's a major, major red flag. And I think that what you do about it is you outline to that lawyer that you've hired, that you have an expectation that they're going to get back to you, whatever your expectations are, put it in writing. And if those expectations are breached time and time again, you need to consider whether or not that lawyer is the right lawyer for you. But what's Uh so so that's that's what that's what I say. It's a pet peeve of mine and all the lawyers in our firm and all our offices know this. They do not want to get an email from you or a call from me that I've gotten a complaint from a from a client about non-responsiveness. I'll tell
1: you that. What's the, but what's the genesis of this? Why as a lawyer, this is your business. This, you know, for all intents uh-huh. and purposes, how you make your living. Why would you why would you ignore yes. somebody? I mean, it's your bread and butter. I I don't get it. What's in their head? I,
2: I, that's a great question, John. And I'll tell you, g- gut feel. OK, there are three reasons, three main reasons I can, I can think of. Uh, uh, and, and the lawyer may tell you that it's because they're busy. Let me tell you this. Very few lawyers, I think, are as busy as some of our lawyers in our firm. Albert included here. I mean, the amount of work we have on our plate. Again, we take as much as we can handle. I think if a lawyer takes so much work that they cannot handle, well, then they should take less work on. So to me, really busy, being busy is not an excuse, but it's one reason I'll give you. Let me give you two other reasons that I attribute. This is from me. This is personal. Many lawyers will take offense to this. I think it's because lawyers have egos to the sky, and I think because many of them are stupid. There is literally no reason why a lawyer should be ignoring phone calls and emails of clients. Again, sometimes you can't get back to a person, just like now we're doing the show, or if I'm in court or whatever is happening, I understand, or I'm with my family. I'm not saying that people should do what I do, which is respond to people at 5 a.m. or respond on weekends or respond when I'm on vacation. It's just me, okay? I'm not saying, I'm not holding people to that level. But I think that if you are during the workday, receiving an email, there's nothing that stops you from just flipping it to your assistant or someone else in your office. If you can't get to that person and say, can you just let this person know or give them an update, you know, and, and answer their questions. And, and by the way, give me, I would love to debate this with any lawyer who tells me they don't have time to ask them. You don't have time to simply respond a one liner to an individual saying got your message busy right now we'll get back to you in a few hours or tomorrow or whatever it is but no these lawyers have egos to the sky many of them are not even good lawyers some of them are unfortunately the best lawyers i've ever come across senior and junior the best lawyers are the most responsive lawyers makes sense to me that is a sign of respect and it's a sign of you not just respecting the client respecting yourself respecting the profession
1: you know, it's amazing, too, as we get into a break here. Would it would it also be the factor that maybe, you know, your case might not be from a dollar value as robust as, say, the guy next to you, so he's going to get the response quicker?
2: 100%. 100%. Uh, I think uh, that uh, lawyers prioritize. I think that's what they yeah. do. I think, again, that's not right. Uh, you know, the fact that you have a claim that's worth $10,000 versus another claim that's worth a million dollars, I understand how that will affect lawyers' behaviors, but if you chose to take on that client, and you don't have time to respond or dedicate the time you need to dedicate, well, then give it to someone else. In other words, tell the client, go elsewhere. Here are some recommendations. There is no reason why a client should be left hanging in the wind. It's just not right. And any lawyer that wants to debate me on this, by all means, give me a call. But no one will. No one will. But the lawyers that don't respond, they know who they are. And unfortunately, in my experience, that's the majority of lawyers out there. Again, the best lawyers I've ever come across, the best ones are the responsive ones.
1: With that, we'll take a short break, guys. And uh, Albert, I'll get to an email that's uh, being pointed towards you, but we'll take that short break first. You can always send them along, not just during this half hour show, but any time of day to Savannah or Albert and their crews. uh, Help at disabilityrights.ca. And that phone number, again, 1 855 821 5900. Keep it and use it. And we'll continue with more disability law show. Hang on. This is the Disability Law Show. Yep, welcome back. Disability Law Show. Got a few minutes to go, so I'm going to give you those numbers and contact information again. Keep it with you and always feel free and don't be uh, bashful to give uh, Savannah or Albert a call. They'll put you in touch with who you need to talk to and have a chat uh, with you themselves. No pressure, no charge. Just to uh, get your bearings and see what your situation is. 1-855-821-5900. Help at disabilityrights.ca is how you do that. Albert moving down to Layla. Writes in, says, uh, guys. Guys, how do you decide if to take an injury case? My brother is 28 and was cycling his bike three weeks ago when he was hit by an inattentive driver. The police charged the driver with careless driving. My brother was taken to hospital with several breaks in his right arm and shoulder and had two surgeries. He's now in rehab. He obviously won't be able to go to work in the foreseeable future, which is a problem because he's an electrician. And if he doesn't work, doesn't get paid. What should he do? Who's going to reimburse him for his loss of work income, and what about all the treatments he needs now?
0: Layla, that's, that's great that you're emailing him about your brother, and thank you for doing that. It's good to know that people are looking out for their family, and uh, it's very unfortunate that your brother su- suffered this accident. So, your brother's own insurer should actually be covering him for loss of income benefits and medical and rehabilitative expenses. So. He should look to his own insurance company if he has, if he has insurance otherwise if he doesn't have any insurance it's the driver that hit him who's supposed to be covering him for these loss of income benefits and these medical and rehabilitative expenses and we have spoken on the show many many times uh if, if you're not a regular listener i'll sort of break it down for you quickly in most of these claims there's two aspects of a claim there's uh accident benefits which is essentially like a flotation device it essentially keeps you covered keeps you more immediately covered and usually there's a bit a little bit less of a fight just to recover those sorts of benefits and these are legislated and you're entitled to a certain amount in the event that in 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 the event that you prove that you're entitled to or that you can't work or that you Are incurring medical and rehabilitative expenses like physiotherapy, chiropractic services, things like that as a result of an accident. And so, for loss of income benefits, usually you'll be covered for up to $400 a week in most standard policies. And then for injuries like your brother's, he would be covered for up to $65,000 in medical and rehabilitative expenses. And so Given the severity of what it sounds like your brother has actually gone through, he's probably going to well exceed that $65,000 in many years time and the $400 a week just isn't going to cut it in terms of actually covering him for what he was making as an electrician. So usually the bigger component of any claim is actually recovering against the driver that caused the accident. And so in this case usually these cases take a little bit longer to resolve, which is why your brother should definitely go to his own insurer. But the larger case against the driver that hit him is called a tort case. And so how do we decide if we're going to take on one of these cases? I mean, we look at it very holistically. Uh, There's two aspects to deciding that. One, we look at who was at fault. In this case, it very clearly sounds uh, like the driver who hit him was inattentive. The police actually charged him. So I think establishing that he was not at fault is going to be relatively easy. And then, of course, we look at the, the value of anyone's injuries and we break it down in terms of what we call pain and suffering or general damages, which is basically how much has he suffered. Usually the law will have a number of different factors to look at in order to determine how much a person has suffered and how much any sort of injury is actually worth. And then we look at income loss expenses, anything that wasn't covered by accident benefits. We look at medical and rehabilitative expenses, anything that wasn't covered by accident benefits. And then we look at out-of-pocket expenses. And we take all of that in the aggregate. We talk to you. We tell you, give you sort of a range of what your case could be worth. Of course, a lot can change over a year's time or two years' time. And ultimately, it's, uh, it's your, your decision whether or not you want to commence a legal claim. And that's generally the process in terms of how we decide whether or not to take an injury case on from our standpoint.
2: Anything to add to that? Uh, so I, I think you covered it really nicely. And, and Leila, you know, we do have lawyers, we have paralegals, we have clerks, we have you know a whole gamut of people that work with us, including, by the way, experts that we retain. So, you know, if, if, you know, your brother was taken to hospital with several breaks in his arm and shoulder and need surgeries, we're probably going to need several experts on the case to make sure that we properly and adequately uh, focus on presenting those injuries and those losses from those injuries to the insurance companies here. And, And that means potentially hiring an orthopedic surgeon, potentially hiring an income loss expert a vocational expert, perhaps a future care cost expert, somebody who can quantify what kind of treatments your brother will need going forward, maybe help at home the way that, you know, Albert was talking about. So all these experts, you know, we may have to invest 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, $100,000 in the case. So when we're looking at, and that's not something the client pays, that's something that we as the firm pays, right? So that's why we're very selective in the cases that we take on. Certainly, Leila, I can tell you that given what you've described with your brother, we can 100% help your brother here, not even a question. But we do also have paralegals, by the way, that deal with smaller types cases, cases that will go to small claims court in Ontario. So that's something that we, we do deal with. Typically, though, we do deal with the larger type cases when it's myself, Albert, other partners at the firm that are handling these kinds of matters. But yeah, it is a holistic uh, way of looking at it. Uh, and I'll tell you, if we can't help you for whatever reason, we'll make sure that we tell you who we think can. So at the very least, you'll get some information from us.
1: Layla, thank you so much for reaching out. You got the email address, obviously. The phone number now, 1-855-821-5900. Moving on down to Amanda. Let's squeeze this one in. It says, uh, my husband was in a car accident last spring when another car re-rended him. Our car was written off, and my husband still goes to a lot of therapy. He suffered a concussion and was diagnosed with post-concussion syndrome. He used to work full-time as a manager at a furniture store, but since the accident, he's only been able to work part-time with accommodations. The problem is that his company now says that if he doesn't come back full-time in a couple months, they'll have to let him go. What can we do?
2: This wow. is this is not unusual, Amanda, I, and I, I'm very sorry for what you guys are going through. I mean the fact that he suffers from concussion and has post-concussion syndrome. I mean, let's just substitute the word concussion for brain injury. And and there is different types of brain injuries and different severities. Some of them are mild. Some of them actually you can get better and and pretty much bounce back to to how you were pre-accident within a matter of days or weeks or months. And some of them last. Some of them are life long, uh, you know, issues with your brain injury. And that can manifest in every aspect of your life. In this case, Amanda's husband John can't go back to work. So, in addition to everything Albert talked about before, accident benefits like income replacement benefits, uh, benefits for for um, you know potential medical expenses, that are not covered. Uh, sorry, that, that will be covered. Uh, there are other types of of things that uh, he may be entitled to such as that tort claim, that claim against whoever was at fault, whoever re-rendered him. And that claim itself could easily, based on the information we have from Amanda, reach into the seven figures. So it's absolutely crucial that we get in there and talk to them immediately and give them the information they need. But I also want to address the fact that his company, the company he works for, is now taking this position where if he doesn't come back full time in a couple of months, they're going to let him go. Well, that's an employment law issue, and of course, we have lawyers that all they do day in and day out is deal with employment matters on behalf of employees. It is illegal in Ontario to let someone go from their job who are disabled. That's a violation of the Human Rights Code. So, employers still do that. However, they are once they do that, if they do that, you can go after them for violations of the Human Rights Code. So, not only do they need to pay you if that happens, severance they may have to pay you human rights damages because you cannot terminate an employee who is disabled. And so in this case, you can see, John, you need not just a personal injury lawyer or a law firm, but also a firm that has a specialty expertise experience in employment law. And so again, Amanda, we will be able to help here. We may be able to, in this case, by the way, to communicate with the company, his employer, and potentially avert that showdown. Right. Even though what we do is fight these insurance companies, we fight these employers who act in an underhanded way and in a bad way. It's always better to finish the fight before you even start it because it is, it is, you know, anxiety-provoking. It is difficult for people to go through this process. We try and make it as easy as we can for them. But if we can write a letter, for example, Amanda, to your husband's employer, explain to them that they cannot fire him, and if they do, here's what's going to happen, that may av- they may back off. That's my point so that you and your husband can focus on your husband's recovery as opposed to have to deal with the other issue, with the employer. So, John, I just wanted to put that out there because it's important people understand we deal with personal injury, we deal with long-term disability, and we deal with employment law. Those are the three areas that we have expertise in. We don't do real estate, criminal law, family law. We can refer people to other lawyers, but we have a specific area of expertise or areas of expertise, and that's what we stay with.
1: I know we got, uh, you know, about a minute and a half left to go here, guys. Let me ask you this. I, I uh, Savannah, you or Albert can, a- can uh, answer this. Do you think sometimes when it comes to an employer saying, you know, oh, three months or whatever, you got to come back to work, do you think sometimes they've gotten wind that possibly you're being cut off your insurance, therefore they're going to be in lockstep? Well, the insurance cuts you off. That means you're good to come back to work, so get your butt in here.
2: Yeah, we both see that. Albert, do you, do, do you want to talk about that? I'm sure you see that as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, often they like to piggyback on what the insurance company says and it's, it's a way for them to sort of divert responsibility from them and say, oh, well, this wasn't a decision that we made. This is the insurance company. And if the insurance company who's, who's in the business of assessing whether or not someone can or cannot go to work says that you can, well, then that's, that's where the buck stops. But legally speaking, that's not where the buck stops, right? Uh An an employer can't just piggyback off of what an insurance company says and, and mandate that someone has to return back to work simply because an insurance company said so. Plain and simple
1: exactly what I was thinking, right, guys? Exactly what I was thinking. Again, any time you need to uh, to reach out, now that we're ready to, uh, to wrap it up for another day, we always appreciate your emails and correspondence on the show here every Friday. It's a, a simple way to reach out, help at disabilityrights.ca, help at disabilityrights.ca. That's what uh, Amanda and Layla just used for the email, the phone call, any time. Toll-free, obviously, trouble-free, 821 5900 Again, one 821 5900 to reach Savan or Albert or a member of their teams, always ready and willing to have a chat with you with uh, with no pressure. And that'll do it for another Friday. Enjoy your weekend. We'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show.
0: The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto.